0: Hey, I'm David Bitterman. If we've never met before, I'm a lawyer and I've been doing this for a while. I started practicing when the latest tool was an IBM Selectric typewriter. If you all know what that is.
1: I'm Jasmine Weatherell. I'm also a lawyer, but I'm a millennial who made the mistake of starting my practice in 2012, right after the Great Recession.
0: And together, we're proud to host the Persuasion Occasion. It's a multi-generational look at advocacy and negotiation. Do I have this right, Jasmine? Millennials are accustomed to having a voice and seat at the table, and they're an optimistic group who loves social media and want their job and encounters to have
1: meaning? Well, David, I'll admit there's some truth in there. But what about baby boomers? They're known for their strong work ethic and often define themselves by their professional accomplishments. Is that true, David?
0: Jasmine, I have no idea. I'm too old to categorize those people, including myself. But let's talk about the show. We're going to look at persuasion from all dimensions. Our guests are going to include
1: super lawyers, skilled negotiators, jury consultants, behavioral scientists, mind readers, and other experts, all talking about how to be an effective advocate.
0: And we're really excited about working together.
1: Maybe you more than I, David.
0: All right, but let's dive in. Welcome to the Persuasion Occasion. This is where we talk to a variety of people—people people who are experts in convincing people to do things—and we are extraordinarily lucky to today have Gary Nestner, who is con- used to convincing people not to kill other people and to turn themselves in, or not to bomb things. And he's written an extraordinary book, which I had the pleasure of reading, called "Stalling for Time." and Gary, without mentioning other books, I will tell you, it is the best book I have ever read by some former FBI negotiator. And I know there's other books out there, but yours is the best, my friend. And we just wanted to welcome you and have a conversation. I'll let Jasmine introduce herself and then go ahead and introduce yourself too.
1: Hey, Gary. So I'm Jasmine Wetherell. I work with David at Perkins Coie, where we are both attorneys that spend a lot of time negotiating settlements. And... That is definitely lower stakes than the type of work that you are used to doing, but we would love to know more about your background in negotiation and maybe some lessons about how we can incorporate the successful outcomes that you've had into our work.
2: Well, great. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, Jasmine and David, and talk about things that um, really are part of everybody's life. I think in in a sense that all of life is a negotiation. Everything we do, not just in my former profession of dealing with hawks' takings and the like, but any interpersonal contact, business, social, otherwise, it's all about relationships. And to be successful in having influence on others and thereby hoping to convince them to work with you, to avoid conflict, to uh, cooperate, I mean, it's a key element to human interaction, and it's something we all strive to be better at all the time. You did a lot to the way the FBI
0: approaches negotiation, and what I thought maybe what our listeners would be interested in is just your background. And we like to go back to the way background, like where you went to high school and stuff like that, and where you grew up, and then how you came to the FBI, how you started doing the negotiations, and then talk a little bit about the Wonderful innovations that you made there.
2: That's a lot of territory to cover, David. But uh, <laughs> you know, I uh, I'm from uh, Atlantic Beach, Florida, near Jacksonville, and had a great childhood, great parents, good friends, a great place to be raised. And when I was a, a pretty young kid, I was watching the Believe It or Not, the Mickey Mouse Club after school one day, and the host went <laughs> to FBI headquarters and interviewed Jagger Hoover. And something about that interview, you know, chasing gangsters and spies and Thompson machine gun and all that sort of stuff. It just sort of really stimulated me as a young fella. And my mom came home from work, and I said, "Hey, I've I've had an epiphany. I want to be an FBI agent." And uh, I didn't know what an epiphany was, but I apparently had one. And uh, (laughs) she went out and bought me, you know, a kid's book about the FBI. And from that moment on, basically, that was about when I was eight years old or something. I that's all I ever wanted to do. And after college and everything, uh, that's the path I took. I was able to get into the FBI and. Shortly after I became an agent, and I love being an agent investigating bank robberies and arresting fugitives and doing all those things that I dreamed about, but there was a brand new discipline emerging called hostage negotiations that the FBI had sort of borrowed from New York City Police Department, who uh, originated the concept. And it basically was, instead of barging in after someone refused to cooperate and Guns are blazing. We actually try to have a conversation with them and do it the easier way. And something about that, the use of those communication skills, really appealed to me. So, at the earliest opportunity, I I got involved in the training, which was pretty rudimentary at that point in time. Basically, you know, and I became a part time negotiator, and I was also working overseas hijackings and terrorism cases and just really enjoying my career, but eventually uh, I became a full-time negotiator. And once I became the chief negotiator for the FBI, I really changed our program to be not so much one of bargaining, but one of crisis intervention and the use of uh, active listening skills that we borrowed from the you know mental health counseling field, which were very effective in having people tell us what's going on and what they're thinking and what, what issues were motivating their behavior and so forth. And in that process, we were able as negotiators to develop a pretty good relationship with somebody despite the, the intensity of a conflict ongoing. And you begin to hear things where somebody would say, you know, Gary, I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get out of this. And boy, when I would hear something like that, it would be music to my ears because now they're soliciting my opinion. And you only do that when you have a certain level of respect for someone. So, you know, using these skills really, rather than saying, come out or we're going to come in and get you you know, that sort of Jack Webb, Sergeant Friday kind of thing. We took a softer approach, an approach that, frankly, uh, even to this day, a lot of perpetrators don't expect from the police. They expect a more commanding, authoritative approach. And yet, you know, instead of somebody saying, this is Captain so-and-so or Lieutenant so-and-so, you better do this, you'd say, hey, I'm Gary. I'm here to help you get out of this situation. And just in that little brief the comparison of the two styles that I just shared, you can see how that goes over better and is seen as less confrontational and less aggressive. And frankly, it's a, it's a skill set that, you know, more and more police officers need to be able to use in everyday interactions with citizens. And police officers are human beings, FBI agents are. When things don't go the way we expect them, we get frustrated. And that frustration can drive our behavior, sometimes in a negative or an overly aggressive way. So, you know, when you develop the first and foremost skill of a negotiator, and that's self-control. And that applies to you folks in the legal business, too. You're dealing with some clients who have some pretty emotional issues and feel strongly about their position vis-a-vis the other side. And sometimes I would imagine that a good part of your battle is, is not just dealing with the adversaries, but dealing with your own clients and uh, getting them to understand the best way forward. And it takes some skill and some patience. And it's typically best done by listening and acknowledging, paraphrasing you know, it's such a powerful tool in everyday communication. Stephen Covey, the business guru says, first seek to understand and then be understood. And, you know, the concept is certainly not new, but he has coined it in a nice way. And I think it's a, it makes a lot of sense. You know, before I begin to tell you what I think you should do or what you need to do, I've got to respectfully listen. And then through the way in which I respond, and summarize what you've told me, I don't just tell you I understand, I'm demonstrating it. And when you do that, that is the key to relationship building. And well, two things. I got to tell you,
0: I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. And so my mother used to take us down to D.C., and she always wanted us to go to the art gallery the Smithsonian, and the only place we wanted to go was <laughs> FBI headquarters. <laughs> and, and, uh, and they always had, they had the shooting range there, and they give you a, uh, a shell yeah. left it was a souvenir, it was, but it was the best thing we ever uh, You had. know, they, it they really closed
2: that down wonderful. years ago for terrorism things, I understand, but, you know, at one point in time, I think certainly before the Air and Space Museum, that was the most popular tourist spot uh, in the city, you know, and uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Oh, it was great. It was great.
1: So I'm curious, Gary, you know, have you ever been in a situation where it's just been extremely hard for you to build that kind of trust relationship with the person you're negotiating with? And You know, certainly I think as lawyers, we've found ourselves in that situation where the other side just is already biased against us, already doesn't trust anything we're going to say to them. I'm sure it's the same where you've got someone biased against law enforcement and they just will not let you get a a foot in edgewise. What situations have you been in that are like that? And how did you kind of overcome that initial barrier?
2: We we don't have enough time to go through all the ones I've been involved in, but that kind of incorporates or encapsulates, I should say, uh, a vast majority of them. But people don't start off and say, oh, goody, here's the negotiator. Let's talk nice. I mean, there's anger, there's frustration, there's threats against hostages and victims. If you guys come in here, I'll kill them. And, or you better give me some money or a getaway car or let my brother out of prison, wh- whatever it might be. They're very strong things. And you can't expect to be able to forward an illogical, calm argument and change that immediately. It takes time and patience and persistence. It's funny, I was listening to an old podcast I did not too long ago, it was about prison riots. And I'd worked a number of major prison riots and essentially the concessions that the authorities made on day eight, nine, or 10, was exactly what they offered the inmates on day one. (laughs) Yet (laughs) the inmates, because of the emotional factors involved, weren't ready to accept that reality or the appreciation that this is probably the best deal they're going to get. They have to, as it were, blow off steam, vent their emotions, show their anger at being incarcerated and having their freedom denied, whatever it might be that's motivating their behavior. And then after so many days, they begin to realize, well, you know, this ranting and raving and threatening isn't really going to, get me a plane to uh, Australia and a million dollars, you know, and, and they're not going to let me out of jail. And maybe the best thing I can hope for is they don't come in and kill me. And time changes that perspective. I, I remember advising a lot of commanders on the scene. I, you know, I'll only get called in when the situation's gone to hell. Nobody calls you in when it's going to be an easy one. But, you know, I would listen to what's going on. I'd say, well, uh, have you tried this? And they say, yeah, we tried that three days ago and that didn't work. And I'd say, well, that was three days ago. You know, things have changed. You know, if at first you don't succeed, try, try, try again. You know, so people sometimes need that input to say, you know, let's let's be calm and steady here. Let's keep plugging away at this and don't rise to the bait. Don't yell back. Don't manifest our anger in response to whatever they have to say and patiently work towards creating a relationship of trust. That's what it's all about. People want to work with people they like and they trust and they respect. And you get that from someone by giving it to them. You know, you treat them as human beings and appreciate the fact that they have a different perspective. That doesn't mean you agree with it or, you know, condone it, but you're acknowledging it. And you say, okay, I hear what you're saying and this is very important to you and so forth and so on. It's not a complex thing, to be honest with you, but the stuff I did, you got to imagine probably the most dangerous situations you can imagine. Yet we had a a success rate in the, Low to mid ninety percent. Now, if it works when someone's getting ready to cut somebody's throat, then I think it'll work okay when you're dealing with a divorce case between a husband and wife. I mean, I'm not saying it won't have the same level of strong emotion for them, but the consequences are less dire. And if you're patient and calm and thoughtful, you stand a decent chance of coming to an accommodation. I did read your book; it really was great. And
0: I, I, you you know, it really was. And you went to school Fresno, and it was law enforcement. And so, how did you? determine that sort of the
2: psychology and behavioral psychology would be helpful for what you were doing? Well, the FBI course, the two-week national crisis negotiation course, the best negotiation course in the world, didn't have it until like 1990. It started in the mid-70s, and we had a small block of instruction called active listening skills, and it literally was no more than an hour, and we kind of talked about it. And then in 1990, when I became a full-time staff negotiator, there was just three of us in the whole FBI, I was teaching a school in California with one of my colleagues, and we asked, by our definition, how many police officers in this class had negotiated a real hostage situation, someone held for the fulfillment of a substantive demand, something they couldn't get on their own, and no hands went up uh, in this group of experienced negotiators. And we said, well, how many of you have dealt with a crisis, a suicide, you know, domestic? Of course, all the hands went up. And, you know, we had, again, that second epiphany in my life where we realized that we were sort of teaching the wrong things. We were teaching cops and FBI agents to bargain when in reality it was a crisis intervention, you know. So at that point in time, I shifted our entire curriculum towards a crisis intervention model, which also works in bargaining, by the way. And that became then the standard, not only in the FBI, but that spread throughout the country and the rest of the world. And that's, you know, back in 1990, if you asked a a conference of negotiators, how many of you have heard of active listening skills? You'd be lucky in a room of 400 people if one or two hands went up. Now there's not a negotiator in the country that would consider themselves trained that isn't well-versed on that. That's the sort of sea change we've had and it's and the results have been quite phenomenal.
1: Did you find when you were first getting into this type of active listening that there was a lot of resistance from law enforcement to to switching to doing it this way?
2: Yes. <laughs> there was and and still is in some court. I mean, you know, law enforcement's a paramilitary organization and there are still mm-hmm. leaders in various departments at various levels that as human beings get very frustrated when they're dealing with a less than model citizen and that citizen will not comply or do what we want. And it is easy for us to lose our self-control, not only as, you say, a potential negotiator, but certainly as a decision maker. This is what I confronted when we did the infamous Waco situation in 1993. David Koresh was an extraordinarily challenging adversary, a very manipulative, self-serving, narcissistic guy. And he would often say he would do things that he did not do. He would make promises that he did not keep. Now, as a negotiator, I'm kind of used to that. I know that there will be uh, dead ends and um, causes to do a U-turn, and we just have to persevere and work through that stuff. However, some FBI decision-makers at the scene you know, exploded with anger. How dare he do that? He said he was going to do that. He lied to us. Well, once you hear that, kind of response, you know that that decision-maker has lost his or her self-control and their ability to think logically and clearly. So I think increasingly police departments are under scrutiny for the use of force. And I think wise leaders, well-trained leaders are saying, hey, there may in fact be a time where we have to use force to, to resolve a situation, but that should be the very last resort. That should be only after we've exhausted every other opportunity to resolve this peacefully and I think that has increasingly become a bit of a legal burden you know in court an attorney's going to say did you try to negotiate you know, well you know he was a bad guy and we decided to go get him well why what prompted you to go in because you going in with guns ended up with someone dying why didn't you negotiate well you know we didn't want to well, that's not a good enough answer you know you have to be a little bit better prepared to say you know if we take action that Results in a loss of life or serious injury. There is only one excuse, and that is the behavior of the perpetrator left us with no choice. And a law enforcement official has to be able to make that case, not only in a court of law, but in a court of public opinion. The public needs to see that our failure to act probably would have resulted in more loss of life, and we had no recourse. That's kind of the standard. We don't go in just because we can, we go in because we have no choice and I've always had a hard time educating commanders at the scene. I don't ever run a situation. I'm giving advice, but, you know, certainly as my career progressed and I got more senior, you know, I I think commanders listen more carefully when you have a pretty good success record and they want to know what's the best course of action. And, you know, you can be a tremendously effective police chief or sheriff or special agent in charge, yet never work something like a big situation in your entire career, yet you're expected to know how to manage it and resolve it and in reality, you've got to lean on people like me or in other special areas that have that expertise, maybe not the the highest rank but the most experience and and that becomes an again an ego issue in law enforcement paramilitary because now you've got a a colonel telling a general what to do <laughs> uh, in a sense and uh you know the smart generals know what they don't know, but there are some that are you know whose egos sort of dictate their behavior.
0: Just a, a little footnote on Waco to your credit is that not, unfortunately you you were had left the scene when they mm. when they decided to change their tactics.
2: We had a philosophical difference out there. You know my approach was always that it was not a hostage situation. The people that were inside with David Koresh believed in him, believed in his being you know God and having direct contact with God, son of God, however you want to say it, he was the man. And they weren't being held against their will. This was their home. So in cases like that, you basically have to sweet talk people out. (laughs) You don't have to convince (laughs) them it's in their interest. And that was tough because as each week went by and extraordinarily expensive operation, commanders became frustrated. And there was a competing element in our tactical team that wanted to force them out. You know, tighten the noose, increase the pressure. And as a negotiator, we always know we call that the paradox of power. The harder you push, the more likely it is you are to meet resistance. And it's the old saying, uh, the old example I used to give us, you know, if somebody, you know, David, you're in your house holding your neighbor hostage and we show up and we say, David, let him go, come on out. And you say, no, I don't want to. And then we go forward with a tank and crush your brand new car in the driveway. Say, hey, you want to talk now? I mean, are you more likely to now turn cooperative or be more resistant? And I think we know the answer to that. But sometimes it's frustrating. That's why I always mention I start every lecture I give on negotiation with self-control. And that applies, again, not just to the negotiator, but the decision makers. And if the person making the ultimate decisions in a law enforcement context doesn't have the wherewithal to remain calm, you're going to make bad decisions. I can show it on my head. It's the old teeter-totter, which is my favorite graphic. I'll have to show you here. But when emotions are high, rational thinking and behavior is there. So you imagine that child uh, teeter totter. So when the emotions come down, look what happens: rational thinking and behavior comes up, and and that's what this is all about. It's controlling emotions. It's creating a relationship. It's getting patiently to a point where you can exert some influence over someone else's behavior, not control, but influence.
0: Influence.
1: So, Gary, in your book, I noticed you had several stories where you decided to choose someone else on your team to be the head negotiator. Sometimes it was a a younger person. I know in one story where the law enforcement officer was holed up in a bank with his wife, you said, let's get that woman agent on the phone because she's got this calm, soothing voice. Are there things that you think are kind of innate characteristics or maybe learned characteristics that you think make someone more inclined to be a successful negotiator?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, is it uh, nurture or nature? You know, yeah. what, what, uh, right. is it a, is it a an art or is it a science? Well, yes, 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 <laughs> yes. It, it's all of the above. But there are those people in the negotiation program. And fortunately, we attracted such people by and large who are really calm in a crisis, who not necessarily the loudest voice in the room, but the voice that, um, doesn't allow their, anger, frustrations to get the best of them. And I'm certainly, I'm sure this applies to the work that that you folks do is doing civil litigation and so forth. Maintaining a calm perspective, it keeps emotions lower. And when emotions are lower, people tend to be in a position to make better decisions for themselves and for others. It's really not rocket science at all. So if somebody was saying, what kind of negotiator do you want? Someone with a lot of self-control who we, we would use as a, as a sort of criteria someone who's been a, a good in, interviewer, who's been, got a lot of confessions as an FBI agent, ah, someone ah, ah. who has developed a lot of informants, which is a big thing in the FBI. You know, if you want to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan, you don't walk in with your badge and gun. You've got to get someone inside to give you what information you need. So you've got to be able to recruit people, how to recruit a spy. There's a lot of uh, parallels, and you look for those agents that have that skill set. And they tend to be the best negotiators, male or female. In some cases, and you mentioned one of them, Jasmine. There was a, that one particular incident where I felt that, for a variety of reasons, that a female negotiator would be particularly suitable in that situation. As as it turned out, it was.
0: In addition to innate skill or innate, you know, ability to control your emotions, which which I have a hard time doing, frankly. But are there things that you do that you things that you learned that sort of. It would help you sort of slow
2: down and back up. I, I think it's tough, and, and you know, I wasn't as good at this when I began as, as I ended up being later on because it takes a lot of practice and work. There would be times, David, where I would show up at a situation providing some advice or on the phone, and and I knew this, I knew the answer right away. Here's what we need to do. Here's the approach. But I learned pretty quickly that wasn't the best way for me to proceed. You know, the best way would be for me to. Follow Socrates a little bit and say, okay, well, what have you folks done? Or what do you think would happen if we did this? Anybody have any other ideas? I mean, solicit ideas and inputs from the team, leverage the talent, skill, abilities, and experiences of everyone on the team and let them come to the answer in most cases. And they usually do. But you know, every once in a while, you'll say, well, you know, well, what about, you know, I've heard some really good ideas Say, What do you think would happen if we sent in a letter from his mother? Do you think that would be a good idea? What would be the pros and what would be the cons? And you get people thinking and talking that way. And um, I don't know, it's it's always been an approach that's worked pretty well for me.
0: That's great. We talked about Waco, which I guess, you know, unfortunately, 76 people, I guess, were died and like four ATF agents, something like that. It sounds, and well, it's obviously what people have seen the series, I'm sure, uh, but I wanted to also give you an opportunity, because the book is so great, to talk a little bit about some of the successful negotiations that you had. Those stories are just wonderful, I, I know our listeners would love to hear about that.
2: E- even Waco, you know, my negotiation team I'm very proud of, despite uh, the four ATF agents being killed, 17 wounded, I think there were f- six uh, Davidians killed during the initial shootout between the ATF and the branch Davidians. Yet, despite that carnage and really starting out in a hole, we got 35 people out, including 21 children. And I'm very proud of that accomplishment, unfortunately, because of the uh, intense scrutiny this case was under, the million dollars a day or whatever it was costing, you know, big bucks in 93. Um, and political pressure on the FBI. Why can't our premier law enforcement agency just get this resolved? What's taking so long? And all of those things in combination put pressure on management at the scene to make decisions that would run counterproductive and unintentionally thwarted negotiation efforts. And that disagreement got to a point where I was relieved halfway through and replaced with someone else that took a more aggressive approach and no one else came out during the, the remaining 25 days or whatever. So, you know, I, I don't feel vindicated by that, but it, it's actually quite tragic, but it shows what can happen. And even a great outfit like the FBI, well-trained and experienced, bad decisions can be made that can contribute to the outcome. Now, Saying all that, David Koresh was responsible. I mean, every day he had the opportunity to bring his people out and didn't do it. But people I work with in the FBI always say, well, it wasn't our fault. He was a bad guy. Yes, he was a bad guy. That doesn't mean we didn't make mistakes too. You know, if you want to look at things there are people that hate the government that say, oh, look, the government came and said, let's kill all these people. And then there's other people that say, well, these people were kooks and nuts and the hell with them. There was a lot of good people in there and who, naive perhaps, and had allowed themselves to fall under the sway of David Koresh, but they certainly didn't deserve to die. And it's just a tragedy. It's an American tragedy, that whole story. But there's many other stories, you know, that I talk about. Some of them in my book, we were able to get people to to come out and surrender peacefully and avoid further bloodshed. And when that happens, you feel pretty good about that. You know, that were it not for that intervention and that work uh, of the negotiation team, it could have very well resulted in further loss of life.
1: I'm curious, you know, you've been through all of these situations. How much do you look back afterwards and kind of sit down with the team and analyze exactly who said what and what happened, and, and what does that analysis look like?
2: Yeah, no, that's a great question, Jasmine. I mean, typically, part of our protocol is that we review a case afterwards. Normally, in the FBI, we're recording the negotiations. Now, we, if it's a protracted negotiation, we actually listen to those during the ordeal to see if we missed anything when we heard it live. But it also becomes evidence for any subsequent litigation, trial, whatever. And then thirdly, it's a training A tool for later on where we realize, uh, we could have done that better, or we didn't pick up on this line that probably would have been worthy of a more focused response on our part. So yeah, we do that for training, but we always try to do an after action. You know, we try to memorialize what did we do well? And let's be sure that we do that again in the future. And conversely, what should we have avoided? What mistakes did we make? That again, we we learn as much from those as we do from the things we we did well. So that, I think that's pretty standard protocol in most police departments. That particularly comes into play when there's been an an unhappy or tragic ending where a, a victim has been killed or. A, a perpetrator, where you really take a close look at what you did to say, "Hey, could this have been avoided?" And oftentimes, you find that it, it couldn't have been. I've heard some negotiators, you know, so, sort of insinuate that you know they can resolve anything, and we don't control the other person at all. We influence if we do our jobs very well. As I mentioned earlier, we have a pretty high success rate in getting people to comply and cooperate. That's our goal, cooperation. Yet, at the end of the day, there are some people who are so desperate. They don't want to go back to jail. They don't want to, you know, man doesn't want to lose control of his wife who's leaving him and taking the kids. Whatever it might be, we'll end up with a homicide followed by a suicide. And despite what you do, suicides, by the way, are pretty common for negotiators to work. And yet they also are the most tragic because I remember talking to some negotiators in the past that said, oh, I've done 20 of these or 30 of those. I never lost anybody. And I always say, well, you're damn lucky because if you do (laughs) enough of these, if you do enough of these, despite your skill and abilities, someone's going to kill themselves through no fault of yours. And you better be prepared for that. It's not your failure. It's their failure to do the right thing or make the right choices. And you just have to be realistic about that. This comes into play when you have a situation and there's been a loss of life. And yet you've got to get the other people out. You can't, I mean, I talk in my book about a case in Raleigh, North Carolina at an Amtrak train siege. And at a certain point, we found out a baby had died inside this train compartment where the guy's holding another child. And while everybody wanted to, you know, throw up their hands in anger and frustration, you say, hey, we, we got a job to do, you know. We don't have time to mourn this young child right now. Later, fine, but right now we've got another young child to get out of there, and we did. Again, it's staying focused. What's the goal? What's the mission? What are we trying to accomplish here?
0: Is there anything different? I'm sure there is, but if it's just a hostage for money kind of situation or, you know, bank tower for money versus someone who's got political goals and political things
2: that they want to achieve. And could you talk about that a bit? You know, when I was uh, in the, unit, we worked 120 kidnappings of American citizens overseas. Wow. And when I was a young FBI agent, we had a fair amount of kidnappings in the United States. It's almost unheard of now because essentially the bad guys got to pick up the money and that just makes them so vulnerable to modern law enforcement technology and surveillance and all that sort of stuff. So smart criminals are pretty much turned away from that business. It's, it's fairly rare when we have one of those. Overseas, not so much because there's no threat of effective law enforcement or uh, judicial consequence. You know, Mexico City right now, the chances of a kidnapper getting caught are very remote. And if they are caught, the the chances of serving any significant time are pretty minimal. You know, in the United States, you kidnap somebody, you're gonna get 20 years to life, (laughs) even if they're not hurt. If they're killed, you're probably gonna get the death penalty. So there's a different approach there. There's no disincentive overseas. But going back to your question, Kidnapping for money or hostage-taking for a set of substantive demands, it's really quite easy to consider. The person is holding a hostage because there's something they want they cannot get on their own. By holding a hostage and threatening their lives, they're trying to compel us to give them what they want. So they feel powerful. They feel in control. Now, negotiators show up and, you know, eight, 10 hours of talk goes by and they haven't got nothing. It's just not going the way they kind of dreamed and thought it would. They're essentially left with two choices, either surrender or potentially die when the police come in. And fortunately for us, a very high percentage choose to live. and And that's how we have those successful conclusions. Now, when you're talking about terrorism and political, you know, the demands are, in in many cases, unachievable. You know, the demand may ina- actually be for political attention. Now, we're all watching what's going on in Israel right now, and those there's two reasons Hamas probably is holding hostage. One is as a shield against is, Israeli military action, and the second is to try to press for some political concessions. And that's going to probably require some neutral or, intermediary arab country to come in and broker because it's quite clear that the israelis and the hamas are not probably going to sit down at a table together and talk nice so it's a really <laughs> tough and desperate situation and i'm quite glad i'm not involved in it but the prognosis for success in the near term is you know very very low maybe through time and intermediaries you know some some solution that gets these hostages released, but that will require some sort of price for Hamas. I can't see Hamas deciding to do this because it's the right thing to do. That's just, it's just not in the cards. So political kidnappings are much more complex. And the biggest reason they're complex is because now everybody's involved. I, I always talk about a case we had back in, I think it was 1980, this man that was mentally disturbed drove his truck up to the Washington Monument, your old hometown, David. And he said he had explosives in the trunk and he was going to blow up the Washington Monument. And the FBI and local police, the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, Park Police, all worked together and ultimately got that resolved. The man did lose his life, but it was resolved. Now, if you replaced Norman Mayer, was his name, if you replaced him with a Middle East guy who just said he was a terrorist, now it wouldn't have been. Metron police and FBI and park police and so forth. So now it would have been the National Security Council and the Department of Defense and the state, I mean, everybody. And that's the complicating factor in so much of the terrorism cases. It's not so much the dynamics are different, it's the players making the decision are infinitely more complex. And I've always found in those cases, I have to negotiate with the good guys before I can begin to negotiate with the bad guy.
0: That's what I can see. We got to go back a little bit to the Middle East, but Jasmine, I'm, I'm not going to interrupt your next question now.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, Gary, are you still involved in situations like this? And is there anything that you have think has changed kind of with the new technology that we've seen criminals use in these types of hostage situations?
2: I, I'm not involved anymore. I've been retired uh, for the FBI for 20 years. I mean, I give presentations and I do a little instruction on negotiation, but more as it relates to life and business more than, and I'm speaking at a law enforcement conference next week, but I don't do too much of that anymore. Technologically, I think there have been some changes. You know, Even when I retired 20 years ago, it was rare for negotiations to be on anything other than a a regular telephone into a house, or we would send in a phone. Now it's all mobile phones, it's internet, it's uh, text messaging. So technology has had an impact. And you know, one of the tenets of negotiations is we isolate the perpetrator. We're, you know, if he's in a trailer or apartment building or office building, wherever this event is taking place, we try to cut off all external communications where they can only communicate through us. That's a pretty standard approach. Yet, it's pretty hard to do that unless you <laughs> want to knock down And and we can do that, but knock down all the cell coverage. But then you know, what else are we interfering with? I mean, is there, you know, we cutting power? We we interfering with somebody's dialysis machine down the down the road? I mean, there's all kinds of things that now come into play. But and, and I don't pretend to have an expertise in that area. But it is a complex set of technological developments that that have to be contended with today. That I didn't have to deal with.
1: Absolutely, I was just thinking how interesting it is because you know, so many of our negotiations, we purposefully try to do it over the phone or in person when we can. And I and I think it's it's kind of for the same reason. You want to get them focused on you and and not have the other side be bombarded with all these other inputs. But it's really hard to do now. People want to negotiate everything over email or like you said, yeah. text. And and it's just so much harder to connect with them that way. Yeah,
2: and you know, the email thing is, my, my wife has, well, some of them are gone now, but at one point in time, I had four sisters. And they would quite often get into a little spat amongst them because of email and misinterpreting yeah. messages and the intent because email or text messages just do not really give you adequate sense of, of what's happening. You know, it's it's words. So that's why, yeah, we always want to talk directly with the person or sit down with them. We did, couldn't do that so much because of the risk, but you certainly can do that in your context but i sometimes find telephone negotiations are pretty good because you don't have the visuals interfering other people say oh you're missing out on the body language which is very important mm, you know okay but i sometimes like the idea of the challenge of creating a relationship just over the telephone you know if you have that opportunity of course now everything's uh, video calls and 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 so forth and so on as we're doing now but you know i you you can certainly work hard to create that relationship. I think you just have to be patient and the real key is listening to other people and not just there's a reason they're called active listening skills. Listening is something we all think is sort of a passive endeavor. Mhm. Mhm. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's really saying, "Okay, let me make sure I understand what you just told me. I'm paraphrasing in my words, and did I get that right?" Because now you have a chance to correct me if I get it wrong, which is fine. I've still learned the vital information that I'm trying to seek, you know, but also it shows respect. Before I tell you what I think, I want to understand how you feel about this. And it's a pathway that I found is the best way to, to approach things. It's hard sometimes. A lot of things you want to say and get off your mind, but you're really much smarter to kind of take a, a sort of a step back and, and let the other person fill in the void. You know, in human beings, when we talk to one another, we get into a Cadence. I'll say something. And then either by looking at me or the hesitation, you'll say, okay, now it's my turn to talk, you know. So sometimes just by being quiet, we really encourage others to provide us with more information. And then we can ask open-ended questions. Could you tell me more about that? I just heard you say such and such. I'm not sure I understand what you meant by that. None of that's aggressive. None of that's challenging. It's just seeking more information. And as litigators, the more information you have, the better you're able to to steer the conversation towards a solution. And and because I know you do lecture on active listening skills.
0: So, and I'll just mention this as as an aside, that one of the most successful mediators in our business, I'll give him a plug, Anthony Piazza, Tony Piazza, he charges like $50,000 a day, or you got to go to his place in Maui if you want to do the mediation there. But one thing he does is when you have both sides in separate rooms, but he comes in and the first thing he says, he goes, all right, let me just make sure I understand your argument. And he'll recite the argument. He'll say, this is what you're trying to say. And then, did I get anything out? Did I leave anything out? Did I misunderstand anything?
2: And he does it with the other side. And I think that's why he gains so much trust. Uh, I mean, people want to be understood. They want to be listened to. They want to be appreciated. It's such a cheap concession. Listening is the cheapest concession we can make because it's no <laughs> concession whatsoever. And if a person gets angry at you and say, David, I don't think you understand what's going on here. You say, well, you know, help me understand that if I've gotten something wrong, I want to get it right. I want to make sure that I understand everything you're trying to tell me. And then, you know, what's a real powerful tool After you've had this conversation for a while, my favorite technique is a big summary. You know, you say, okay, we've been talking for about 15 minutes here, 20 minutes. Let me, as you suggested, this lawyer from Maui or whatever, let me make sure I understand what it is that's important to you and what are the key elements to what you would like to see come out of this. And if you get that right, I haven't just told the person I'm listening. I've demonstrated it. I've proven it by repeating back in my words what he has told me. Again, you're paraphrasing throughout, but when you wrap it up in a nice, put a ribbon on it and wrap it up in that beautiful summary, it's a powerful tool. It's a very powerful tool. And it's not manipulation. People, oh, you're manipulating. No, you're not. You're just sincerely and genuinely expressing an interest in understanding and learning more. It's gold.
0: That's really interesting. It's a way... A lot of lawyer negotiations happen, at least in my experience, is two lawyers, both on one side versus the other. One lawyer gets up on the phone and says, hey, this is why your case is so bad. You got this problem, you got this problem, you got this problem. And they just recite everything. And, and so you're in real trouble. So this is why you ought to do something. I mean, then the other side you know, says their own. But that's the way a lot of them transpire. And I just want to get your thoughts about that.
2: It sounds like you feel as though The position my client's taken is, is not very supported by the data. Am I hearing you right? So I'm not agreeing with you. I'm not saying you're right. You got me. I'm saying like, is that what you're saying? Okay. And could you expand a little bit more on why you feel that way? Because, you know, I'm not sure if my client sees it the right way, but I'd like to hear your ideas on it. And the other thing is slow things down. There's not a darn thing wrong with taking a time out, slowing things down. So you know, David Jasmine, the three of us have talked about this issue for about an hour or two now. and We brought up some really important points and I can see some areas where I think we can make progress and I can see some areas where we still got some work to do. But why don't we take a break? You guys sit down with your team. I'm going to go back with my team. We're going to see if we can look into this a little further and see if we can explore maybe uh, some different ways of approaching this and come up with some ideas. And when we speak next, maybe we could... And sometimes you do that, not because you really have some other ideas, but you're just trying to lower the emotion because now on this last 10 minutes, it got kind of tense and nasty. So you just shut it off, you know? So, okay, but, you know, I think maybe we should take a break for today. And of course, something I couldn't always do in my life, you could say, well, we'll get back to you tomorrow. But, you know, <laughs> it in, 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 in certainly... Yeah. In your world, you can. But we even did it in hostage situations. Say we've talked a lot here about things, and let's let's take a little break. I I need to go to the restroom. I need to get something to eat, and then we'll talk again shortly. We'd never say I'll call you in fifteen minutes. We never put a deadline on ourselves, but we we'll said I'll get back to you soon. Yeah. That's the the cool off period. Yeah. And the other thing we would do is, and I always insisted on this, you know, when my team and we negotiate in a team when A call was over before anybody got up and took a smoke break or got a snack or went to the restroom. We analyzed the prior call. Okay, what did everybody hear? What does it mean? After the analysis, then we'd say, okay, what's our next response going to be? Because without any notice, the other party may contact us five minutes from now and we've got to be ready for it. Now, we did those two things. Okay, everybody go stretch your legs, take your smoke break, whatever it is that you need to do, get a bite to eat, and we're ready now. If that other call comes in, we've identified the three or four points we want to make, and we have anticipated, to the best of our ability, what we think the other party's concerns or issues will be, and here's our response to them. I mean, it really is leveraging a team effort. Why do I want to use Gary's mind against Jasmine and David's when if I got five people behind me, you know, you two are formidable adversaries. I, I don't want to have to depend totally on my experiences and my thoughts. I want my team listening and saying, well, did you hear David say that? I said, no, I, m- I missed that. What did he say? Well, it's very important. When you said this, he said that. And like, oh, I didn't pick up on that. That's a, You're right. That's insightful, you know? that's how we leverage a team.
1: Wow. As we've been talking, I've kind of gotten this impression and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like you're adopting a lot of the strategies of a therapist. Yeah. Is that right? Do you feel like you're being a therapist sometimes? I
2: mean, the skills, the active of leading skills, they're from Carl Rogers. You know, it comes from the counseling community. I, I, my daughter's a school counselor, uh, my oldest daughter. And when she was in high school, she took and that she became a counselor because she took a course in high school that she just loved on counseling. And she's coming home, she's doing her home, and she's choosing active listening skills, you know. And I said, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> I said, I've been trying to manipulate you with those for 20 years now, and all of a sudden you're, right. you're bringing it home. Turn it
1: around on you.
2: <laughs> well, and the other thing I would also say, a, a, a slightly different twist on that point, but a lot of this stuff doesn't work at home because you have a history of –
1: That's what I was going to ask. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, like, I mean, my wife and I, when we have one of our disagreements, I might employ some of these skills and she would say, "Eh, eh, 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 not here at home, you know. I
1: see what you're doing. (laughs) I know what
2: you're doing and that's not going to work. So sometimes it actually works better with uh, someone that you don't have a real close relationship or a history because history has baggage usually. And the whole reason you're in an acrimonious situation is that that baggage may not be pleasant and it gets dragged back into the. Well, you know, I don't know if you guys ever do divorce work, but you know, that's that can get quite quite nasty. When, Th-
1: Thankfully, no. Yeah, but you know,
2: <laughs> I, I, I mean, one of my fraternity brothers in college was was an attorney, did divorces, and you know, he's doing a husband and wife, and the husband pulls out a gun and kills him, my friend. So, I mean, it's there's strong emotions there, and that's something you just have to be aware of. You know, we just have to be really careful that you come across as uh, you know as as respectful and genuine. And don't lose your cool. Don't say those snarky little things that you really want to say. I mean, I've certainly been guilty of that in my personal life in the past. You know, you've got a quick witticism to address this inappropriate comment that someone's made. And you just learn, as you get older in life, like me, you just hey, let it go. You know, it's not important. <laughs> it's, it's not important. I mean, look at traffic altercations these days. You know, in the old days, you might flip somebody the bird for cutting you off. Now I said, don't do that. That idiot may have a gun. <laughs> you know, you don't know... If this is, you know, road rage poster boy of the month or what, you know, just <laughs> let it go. It's just not, let them have the parking spot. Don't get in an argument over it. It's just not worth it. Do they win that way? Well, it's fine, but you've kept yourself safe. You know, that's all that counts.
1: Right. That, that's a real concern in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, I think
2: yeah. not, certainly not there alone, but of course my wife and I just came back from Sicily. And if you looked at the drivers there, you would say, hey, nobody's a problem in the States. I mean, that's...
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you can't talk to them unless you speak Italian. Like, no. <laughs> so, so our goal is to try to you know uh, educate our listeners, become better uh, advocates and convincers. So just on active listening skills... I mean, the things that I heard you tell say were ask questions, try to paraphrase what they said or repeat what they said, acknowledge what they said, and then take some time. And I just want to see if there's anything else that you would advise
2: our listeners to do to become more effective in terms of dealing with others. There's a couple things to remember. You will make mistakes. Don't get caught up on it. You know, we talked earlier, Jasmine, about recording negotiations and listening. And I'm sure if I listened to every negotiation I ever made, particularly at this point in my life, I would say, Ugh, screwed up there. That wasn't very good. But what wins the day and will win the day for anyone listening here who's engaged in this work in life is your overall demeanor and the posture you present of being a caring, genuine you know, non-jerky kind of person. But David, going back to the summarizing of the skills, it's two things. It's a restatement of content. In other words, and a reflection of emotion. A restatement of content and a reflection of emotion. Those are the two things you need to do. If someone's telling you about a situation, they're very animated and very excited about it, acknowledge that. Say, well, I can tell this is really, frustrating for you, isn't it? I'm not telling them to be frustrated. I'm just telling them what I hear. And you say, yes, because when people are very expressive like that, they're trying to make the point that they're frustrated. And when you say, I hear that you're frustrated, it takes away the reason for them to keep demonstrating that sentiment. So we reflect the the emotion. You know, or it could be a good story. I mean, it could be your one of your family members coming to you with a story about a vacation and they went to Sicily and how much they enjoyed it, and you go like, "Wow, it sounds like you just had a terrific time." That is me saying, "I heard you. I heard what you had to say. I acknowledge the feeling that you had on this event, be it good or bad." And the other one, you know, the restatement of content. You know, I, I think it's a good practice drill for your listeners. You know, just ask somebody in casual conversation, have you been on vacation lately? And they say, yes. Well, where did you go? And ask them questions about it. And it gives you an opportunity to restate. So you went to Sicily and then you, you took a day trip to Taramina. uh-huh. And that sounded like it was really, really interesting for you, but the roads were a real challenge. And then you went to Cefalu and uh, you had a great meal at this uh, Michelin restaurant. And boom, 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 boom. You can wrap up the two that I hear the story of what you did, what you experienced, and how you felt about it. The the other way we illustrate that is concentric circles, a a donut, as you were. And the center circle is called the story. Here's what happened. Here's the issue with the divorce. Here's the the business problem, whatever. And then the candy coating around that M&M or that donut is the emotions. So every engagement has those two things. The basic premise or story of what happened and then how people feel about it. You know, it's not what happens to us in life, it's it's how we feel about it. You know, when I was consulting after I retired from the FBI, I did some workplace violence uh, things for clients. And some businesses would be god awful at closing a plant and terminating people without any sensitivity, without any commentary, without any reassurance about continuation of benefits, you know, job placement help, anything like that. Just say, "Hey, Everybody's supposed to leave the factory. You can't come back. We're closed, you know. And then the other cases, management would say, okay, here's, nobody's happy about this. We're not happy about this, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue your health insurance for X number of months. We're going to set up a counseling team to help you with job placement. We're going to give you all recommendations for your next job, blah, 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 blah. Now, they're still not happy about losing their job but they're less likely to act up and tear the place apart or sabotage the place or because of the humane way in which they were treated in a respectful way. So again, it's not just what happens to us in life. It's, it's how it happens. And remember, if somebody says they're in crisis, it's easy for us to say, well, that's no big deal. If, they're, if it's a big deal to them, it's a big deal, you know? Uh, and, and we have to recognize that. Things that might not bother the three of us, could be pretty traumatic for somebody else. My car was was in a wreck, you know? He's well, saying, well, don't worry, you get a new car, you get it fixed. It's no big deal. You got insurance, you know? No, they're not looking for a solution from you. They're looking for an understanding of how they feel. And this comes into the marital aspect of it, Jasmine, that we we're going with. I, I think men are particularly bad at this. We want to solve a problem very quickly. You know, cops are trained that way. Identify a problem, solve the problem, move on to the next problem. And when our spouses come to us and, well, this happened to work, you just say, well, you tell your boss this and you tell him that. Now, what's for dinner? And when reality, <laughs> you know, that's that's really not why your spouse came to you, to solve. Right. But, but even right. at my level of negotiation, my wife's constantly saying, don't solve my problem for me. Sometimes you catch yourself doing it despite. Despite the fact that you know you shouldn't, you know, it, it's just human nature to, and guys in law enforcement and military are particularly bad, and I suspect lawyers are too, particularly men, we just, we want to rush to solve that problem, and we've got to slow it down a little bit. We'll get there, just don't be in too big of a rush, and because when you rush to solve that problem, you're basically telling the person, I really don't care how you feel about it. You're needlessly worrying, you're making, it's insulting to some extent. You know, so you have to invest the time and effort finding out how they feel about it and what's going on. And then you can say, have you thought about doing this? You know, I had a problem with my boss once and this is what I did. I don't know if it would work for you, but, you know, there's things like that that you can do that are more likely to be successful than just basically saying, "Okay, here's what you do.
1: Right, right. I mean, this reminds me of that phrase, you know, 20 years from now, people won't remember exactly what you said to them, but they'll remember how you made them feel.
2: Well, not only that, that, that brings up a good quote that I use all the time now. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, when I look back at the situations I worked in my FBI negotiation career, we, I and my team were always in the habit of asking the perpetrator who came out, what was it that we said that made you uh, Co- cooperate and come out. What was it? We want to learn, right? And the answer su- was surprisingly the same, always the same. I don't remember what you said, but I like the way you said it. <laughs> now wow. you think about yeah. that, your tone, your demeanor, your posture, your demonstration of sincerity and genuineness really carry more weight than what it is that you are saying. I think it's mm-hmm. pretty telling, yet yeah, I, I use it in the context of raising children, you know, my generation, we dads feel we have to lecture our kids, you know, about things. Okay. You know, well, let me tell you about this. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and after a couple of minutes, you can see their eyes glass over <laughs> and, and and they've tuned you out completely, completely. But what the thing is that they remember their whole lives and repeat is watching your behavior. When you go to a restaurant, how do you interact with the waitress? How do you hold the door for some elderly woman who's on crutches and trying to get in or whatever it is? Children see more through observation and learn more through how you behave than what you tell them they should do. So there's some you know, clues there for all of
0: us. That's fantastic. I'm
2: babbling on here. so time No, to no, question. we love it. No, this
0: is, I mean, listen, our listeners are going to get advice on negotiation and on child rearing and on marital marital uh, success. Jasmine, by the way, just got married. I don't know if
2: Jasmine. Well, congratulations. <laughs> I, I used to tell people I said, none of this stuff works at home. So don't. Uh...
1: <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I I, support that <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> Can't use any of our well, lawyers. It's a little
2: too strong in the context of a marriage, but the old saying about Familiarity breeds contempt, you know. It uh, it always comes to mind for me. And again, it's that history stuff, you know. But here's a good practice drill for your clients. I I, I do this all the time. I don't travel as much as I used to. But when I was consulting a lot, giving uh, keynote addresses, whenever I would travel, I, I don't like room service, and I don't like to sit in a restaurant by myself. So I'd go to the hotel bar and I'd get a steak and watch the game, talk to the bartender, whatever. But whoever net, sat next to me male, female, young, old, became my target du jour. And the target, <laughs> oh. the the game was, I'm going to learn everything I can about this person without really disclosing much about myself. I'm not purposely going to hide it, but people enjoy talking about themselves and what they do so much that if you keep that flame fanned, they never get around to asking you much about yourself, you know? And, uh, so it's, it's quite fun. Plus, you meet some really interesting people. So uh, that's kind of been my little game. And that'll do it in a sinister, manipulative way. I just want to say, well, tell me more about that. You know, I mean, I always tell a story. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, and this guy walks up to the bar and he's got medical scrubs on. And I ask him, I saw him, is there an emergency in the hotel? He said, no, 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 I'm just getting off of work. I said, oh, you must be a surgeon. He said, no, no, I'm not a surgeon. I said, well, I see you have medical scrubs on. He said, well, I'm a medical device salesman. And I go, oh. Okay, so why would you have scrubs on? He said, I go into surgery and teach doctors how to do, put in artificial knees and artificial hips and so forth. So I gave him a big compliment right off. I said, So you teach doctors, you know, because doctors are high uh, on the yeah. social yeah. pedestal.
1: Uh-huh.
2: I said, So you teach doctors? Wow, that's amazing. Well, over the next 40 minutes, you know, I knew Jim, his wife's name, his kid's names, where he lived, what kind of car he drove. I, I knew his handicap on the golf course, and I knew all kind of stuff about Jim. And a very interesting... You could
1: basically steal his identity at this point. Uh, pretty much.
2: And finally, you know, I'm tired. I got to give a speech the next day. I said, Jim, I, I got to tell you, this has been an incredibly fascinating discussion. I said, I never knew about artificial joints and you know, what that requires and all that. I said, that's really, thank you for sharing that with me. I said, I got to go to bed. I got an early morning speech. I said, have a nice evening. And he looks at me finally after, you know, 40 minutes of this, said, what's your name again? <laughs> 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 oh my God. And I said, uh, I, I'm Gary Nestner. And he said, and wh- what do you do? I said, i retired. I was the chief hostage negotiator for the FBI. And, and I just walk away and I kind of look in the mirror and he's going like, you know, <laughs> thinking to himself, he might've heard a good story or two yeah. as well, you know? Yeah. But I didn't give him a chance and that wasn't fair. But but I'm saying, and I don't really don't mean that in a manipulative way, but anybody who's listening to this podcast, I mean, get in the habit of doing that. Maybe it's a social function. You, you know, your spouse and you go to some party in the neighborhood and there's, a, you know, some new neighbors there that you haven't met. You know, don't just hang around with the people you already know. Say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go talk to this Jasmine gal that just moved in with her husband, David, you know, and I'm going to, see where they're from, what's going on. And sometimes you just really meet some super interesting people. And you might, at the end of the evening, say to your spouse, hey, let's let's have them over for dinner. They seem like really nice people. And we, we all like camping or, you know, they, they like the same kind of, you know, they like to have Chinese food like we do. or Who knows? Could be a thousand things. But you don't know until you give it a chance, you know. And these are good habits to get into. You don't have to be a, in a hostage situation. You know, you just... <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Or you don't
2: have to be in an acrimonious uh, civil suit or litigation, you know, just everyday opportunities to kind of, uh, you know, to have, have that opportunity to do that, you know?
0: Oh, that's a great, great lesson. Well, we, we, we've we taken a lot of your
2: time and it's
0: very valuable. And I can tell a couple of things. One, you're still enjoying life a lot. And that's that means a lot because I think, you know, it's just, you seem like a, just a wonderful person. And I think that the empathy you have is it just comes out all over the place. I wish I had that. And then second that I'm going to recommend your book one more time because it is really a wonderful book and it, your character comes out in that book too. So it's just a wonderful, wonderful piece. Of I sword. can so, plug it too. All right. Stalling <laughs> for time. All right. Get it? You, I, I would urge anyone to read it. Uh, but all right. But Jasmine, you, I'm going to let you say the final goodbye.
1: That's it, folks. Thanks for listening in, and and again, thank you so much, Gary. This was very, very enlightening and very interesting. And I know I, I'm definitely going to go and try and play this game where I uh, steal a stranger's identity. All
2: right. Well, let me know how it goes for you. All right?
1: All right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We could say I'd, I'd like. This is great. I really. This
0: is really good. Hey, that was a great show. Thanks for listening.
1: Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on your preferred listening platform.